0: Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about all of you, but I like talking about the weather. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but even when I come up here and greet everyone every Sunday, I can't help but make a comment about the weather outside And I know that there are people out there who consider talking about the weather to be just mundane, meaningless, thoughtless, small talk. But I like it. I I personally find the weather, and if it's appropriate for the given season and how the seasons affect the rhythms of our daily and year-to-year lives, I find all that fascinating. And I'm pretty sure that this interest was born stems from Moving to Canada, we had someone comment this morning that Canadians love talking about the weather. But, but for me, it was because, you know, I was moving from the other side of the world, from South Africa. And the first major change of the many changes that I noticed was obviously the difference in the climate. We went from living in a Mediterranean, warm, subtropical climate to the Pacific Northwest, rainforest. And we were here only a few weeks before we experienced our first snowfall, and that was incredibly exciting for us as a family. But then, as we were here longer, much to our chagrin, we came to learn that about the average climate in Victoria, uh, how cold and damp and gray and rainy it was most of the time, and how even in summer it didn't get very warm for very long very often. You know, we'd often have... That one week, we were like, oh, it's lovely, and then goes back to rain. Uh, A few years back, we were camping in July in the middle of summer, but it was freezing cold and raining the whole time. Now, I'm always telling Becky how I'm a lot like Superman in a lot of ways. Uh, And that means I need the, the rays of the Earth's yellow sun to give me my strength I think, I think a lot of us are like that, though. So during this cold and rainy camping trip, Becky and, and particularly me made the decision to drive down to California just a few weeks later, just to get in a little warmth. And we enjoyed that so much, we decided to make a yearly habit of it, a decision that was promptly uh when the, the borders shut down during COVID. But now this year, we are finally finally set to make our return down to the California sunshine in just a couple weeks now. However, we realize that we're now not escaping the cold for the warmth. The weather in Victoria has been absolutely gorgeous, and uh, you've no doubt heard me comment on that just about every week. For the last three months, uh, it's been warm and sunny, there hasn't been much rain, uh, so we're not leaving the warmth behind. Uh, it looks like we're, we're, we're leaving the warmth to head to, to what may be scorching heat. Uh, the weather forecast for down there is calling for 36 degrees next Tuesday. So We are having a lovely summer here in Victoria compared to the cold and wet that we were used to. But talking with a number of you about the weather, as I tend to do, I know that many of us are a little uneasy about this, because we know it's not normal, and because we know that much of the rest of the world is warmer than it used to be as well, and this means it's on fire. and We're all just waiting for the smoke to make its way over here, as has now become a regular yearly weather pattern. Global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, it is very tangible these days. That, along with economic turmoil, escalating political tension and conflict, the impending rise of the machines. I don't know how in, in tune you are with it all, but it is amazing how in the last few months, AI has just taken over everything. All these have leave some of us wondering if the end times are finally upon us. Now, whether that is or isn't the case... Jesus says we cannot know the day or the hour. I do think that there is one thing on which the majority of us would agree, regardless of beliefs, that the world is in decay. Is there any hope for this decaying world? But as we just talked about with the kids today, the world is in decay, but it always has been. The Old Testament tells us that it was Adam's sin that brought this decay, this harm, the domination of sin and evil to all creation. But Jewish believers weren't the only ones who were able to observe the state of the world around them. Greek tradition tradition declared that the world had been declining since its past golden age, in the distant, distant past. Stoic philosophers believed that the elements of the world would eventually become unraveled and leave nothing but this primeval fire. So in the first century, when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome, most people already believed in the reign of decay and futility. And in the passage from Romans that we're going to take a look at today, Paul describes creation as in bondage subject to futility and groaning for mercy, for liberation. But today's message isn't a pessimistic prophecy of doom and gloom and despair. It's yet again the continuation of Paul's message of hope, the good news that can be found in Jesus Christ, the gospel. As we've been journeying through Romans, we recall that Paul begins the letter with what appears at first to be a message of despair, the declaration that we're all in the same boat, that we're all guilty of sin against God and against his holy laws, and that therefore we're all condemned to death. But if we don't get frustrated by this, if we don't fall into despair, if we exercise just a little patience and continue reading then this message of despair gives way quickly to the message of hope, the good news that God is justified to declare us righteous, not guilty, because he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin on our behalf. Chapters 1 to 4 of Romans share how God's righteousness has been passed on to us through Jesus. Chapters 5 to 8 then share the message of how through this God has created a new humanity with a new status a new family and a new future that we were slaves in adam condemned to death but are now children and heirs of god in christ with the hope and glory of eternal life Paul began this major section of the letter in chapter 5 by emphasizing the final hope of believers and now he concludes in chapter 8 with the same emphasis Last week we discussed how in Romans 8 verse 17 Paul included the reminder that sharing in Christ's privileges as God's children and heirs also means sharing in his responsibilities. That if we follow Christ we walk in his footsteps and we will face the same suffering as he did. That we share in his sufferings but that this is in order that we may also share in his glory. And today's reading continues right on in Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. And Paul continues with this message of hope in the face of suffering. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul suggests that the ultimate glory that God has promised for our future is so great, so incredible, so beyond our imagination that a proper grasp of this promised glory should put into perspective any suffering that we may be experiencing at the present time. should put into perspective to the point that our suffering should seem insignificant in comparison. Before we dive a little further into these promises, I just wanted to ask... How many of us feel this way? That our sufferings are insignificant in comparison to the hope we have in Christ? How many of us feel this way when we encounter that suffering? Now, I certainly have encountered many wise, mature Christians who are able to genuinely see things this way, and I applaud them. Because I also know that when I've personally encountered significant suffering, this isn't my initial response. The last thing I feel is that it doesn't matter, that it's insignificant. It feels very significant, and I don't like it. And I'm far more likely to cry out, why God or Lord have mercy, than to say, oh well, at least I have hope and future glory. Some of you might feel the same way. But the good news is that Paul isn't saying this to discourage us or to set an unattainably high bar for some Zen-like state of mind that most of us can't attain or at least maintain. Again, these are words of encouragement because Paul isn't sharing a state of mind or perspective or way of thinking. Paul's sharing a reality whether we're able to take this reality into account in the time of our suffering and put it into perspective or not, the reality is that our suffering is insignificant in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us. So at some point we can take comfort in it because at some point we will. Because at some point we will experience this future hope and it will be so great, so incredible, so beyond our imagination that it will make any suffering we may be experiencing at the present time seem insignificant in comparison when we get to compare it. And as we continue reading, we can continue to be encouraged as we are reminded that in all of this we're not alone in our suffering. Our suffering is not an individual battle. It's shared. Paul talks about the the glory that will be revealed in us, not in you. This isn't a personal message about a personal truth. It's a global message to all believers. But it's also a global message for all creation. Paul continues to share, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, to futility, not by its own, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the same freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul continues, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So in these verses, Paul personifies creation. He uses a literary tool where he attributes human characteristics to something non-human to show that the world also longs for the day when the salvation that has already begun in God's children will be completed in them and in all of creation as well. We live in a fallen world. And this doesn't just mean that we're all in the same boat, that we live in a world in which everyone is subject to sin. It also means that when Adam sinned and when Adam fell, the world fell with him. And the world was condemned with him. As we read in Genesis 3:17, when God confronted Adam for his sin, he told him, Cursed is the ground because of you. Sin has caused all creation to fall from the perfect state in which God originally created it. And Paul explains that this means it cannot fulfill its intended purpose because the world is in bondage to death, to decay, since says man was cursed to toil and labor, and woman was cursed to pain and childbirth, and both were cursed to a life separate from God, which brought about death. Creation was cursed, was also subjected to the same despair, the same frustration, futility, as Paul describes it. So that by the time we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're faced with the repeated refrain that all in existence, all the world, everything is vanity. Or, futility, as it's presented in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, with which Paul would have been familiar. All is futility. The world is dying. It is decaying. We're not alone. All of creation is in the same boat. As Paul continues in verse 23, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as well, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now wait a second here. Why are we waiting for our adoption and redemption? Didn't we just read last week? Didn't Paul just write? Didn't I just preach about last week that we've already received Our adoption and redemption. It's making me look bad. Here again, we see the tension between the already and the not yet. In the preceding chapters, Paul has been describing how those who believe in Jesus and have accepted him as their Lord and Savior have already received the Holy Spirit and now live in the Spirit, according to what the Holy Spirit desires. And then here Paul explains that Christians already have the first fruits of the Spirit. That this presence of the Holy Spirit in believers is the beginning of the future that God has promised. And therefore, the beginning of the future world that God has promised. Believers do experience redemption and adoption at the time of their conversion and baptism. This has already happened. Last week, we did observe how we already enjoy many of the privileges of our adoption, how God has already given us his best gifts, his Son, his Holy Spirit, forgiveness, eternal life. But we are still waiting for the fullness of that experience that has not yet happened. and So God's people, along with all of creation, groan and long for the completion of God's saving work. Right now, we also see the world as it is. It is physically decaying. It is spiritually infected with sin. But thankfully, we don't need to be pessimistic or afraid. We don't need to panic. We don't need to despair. We know that when God first created the world, it was not decaying. It was not subject to sin and evil and pain and suffering and death. And God has promised that the day will come when humanity will be redeemed, and so will the world. God has promised a new heaven and a new earth. Now, just so we're all on the same page here, God's promise of a new heaven and a new earth doesn't mean that he's going to completely destroy, obliterate the old heaven and earth. God hasn't promised total annihilation of the present material universe to be replaced by an entirely new universe, but rather, just like how God has promised that our bodies will die and then one day be resurrected, glorified, and perfect, like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ in heaven, God will also transform the present universe so that it will once again be glorified and perfect. That creation will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin and will instantly become more beautiful, more productive, more easy to live in than we can ever imagine. and will fulfill the purpose for which God created it before the fall. So that as we read in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21 3 to 4, God will once again live with us in his new transformed creation. We will be his people and he will be our God. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more futility, no more drought, no more famine. No more scorching earth, no more poisoned rivers, no more smoky skies, no more decay. But the former things will have passed away and God will make all things new. This is the glorious promise. The promise of future glory in which we place our hope even in the face of suffering this promise of being resurrected to eternal life by the Spirit with glorified, perfect bodies, this promise of rest, of rewards, of an eternal family and home, of the absence of sin and suffering, of a new heaven and a new earth, and of living face-to-face with Jesus. This is the promise of future glory in which we place our hope and, as Paul explains, the Holy Spirit In us is the guarantee of this promised future glory. More than a guarantee, it's the first fruits, as Paul puts it, the foretaste. It's the first installment, the down payment of that glory. This isn't a way of thinking or a perspective. It's a guarantee, a promise of a reality of which we've already gotten a taste promise that God will fulfill because God never makes promises he won't keep. He always fulfills his promises in his own time. And so even in the midst of suffering and futility, even though we live in bodies that are decaying and will die, in a world that is decaying and will one day die, even if it isn't our initial reaction, I can, we can take heart Take comfort in the hope we have in the glory that our Father in heaven has promised all of his children, all who believe in and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, all his promised creation. We can take hope and comfort in the hope we have that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible promise. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it in a way that we can put our hope in it and in you. We confess that when we suffer, it's difficult for us. And you know this. And so we thank you that you do provide us with comfort. You do provide us with hope in which we can put our trust. You do provide us with the promise that one day things won't just be better. One day they will be perfect again, just as you intend them. So we pray again, O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. We pray that you would grant us this fullness of your grace, that we running to obtain your promises may be partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.